It's the Jack McDonald Show. Yes, you are very welcome back to the Jack McDonald Show here on Sewer CFM. We're back for another week, week number seven. They still haven't kicked us off the air. Now, of course, something happened over the weekend, and I suppose I'll let you be the judge of that. Yes, the poor English. I'm sure all of us were glued to our TV sets. I was rooting for the English for a period of time, just out of spite of other people, just for the crack of it. Because, I mean, it's no crack rooting for Italy when everybody's rooting for Italy. But ultimately, when it got to penalties, it was kind of fun to go the other end. Anyway, that, uh, of course, was the England team. Donald Ryan will give us his thoughts on it in a few moments' time. He'll be joining us. And, of course, we're going to be bringing you the interview I did a little while ago with Neil Woods. You'll remember Neil Woods is the undercover cop who, is now a, I suppose he's a drug decriminalization advocate. He's got all these terms for it, but that's in a nutshell what it is. So he'll be joining us, I suppose, around half past. Uh, but yes, so that, of course, was the England situation. But there was also another situation in the Octagon, something that uh, six o'clock in the morning, I was watching this, uh, both, you know, in shock, delighted, and um, a little bit upset. The, the fight obviously stopped in a horrible way. Give us your thoughts on how it was going. I was boxing the bleeding head off him, kicking the bleeding leg off him. Usual shoot doing to close the distance. This is not over. If we have to take this outside with him, it's all outside. We don't give a He said that he believes that one of the kicks that he checked is what broke your leg. There was no check. There was not one of them I checked. Your wife is in me, DMs, hey baby, hit me back up on Chachi Level on. We'll be at the after party, the win no club, baby. You looking bitch, you little Connor, you you missed with a punch and stepped back. Tell us what you felt, tell us what you thought was going on. Just the thing had separated and we bleed and landed on the wonky leg like Anderson Silver that time. Something similar to that, it's a fing mad out business. Listen, it was a wild fight for as long as it lasted. I'm sure you'll be back, and I'm sure you're going to want Dustin again, and I'm sure he'll oblige you. There we have Conor McGregor in the Octagon post-fight after he, his leg is pretty much hanging off at that point. I mean, it's crazy. It's a crazy business, as he said. Uh, you know, certainly it's not a 9-to-5, but wow, uh, you know, staying up until whatever, 6 o'clock in the morning. And just as he steps in the ring, the stream freezes and there's a mad panic because, of course, I'm the one in charge of uh, finding, you know, the place to watch the fight. So there's a mad panic to actually find, uh, you know, to, to refresh the, the and find the place and, and get it. And Eventually, you do find that the right stream just as they're about to touch gloves. I mean, what a, he had it at the start. That's the thing. He was looking fresh. He was looking well. And then it kind of deteriorated towards the end. John Kavanaugh has come out and spoken a lot of things. And we will see. It'll be really nice to, to see him uh, in the ring again and um, proper, you know, in a proper fight as opposed to 13 seconds and all this kind of nonsense. Uh, Donald Ryan, we, we speak about that with Donald Ryan. And it's fair to say he has some thoughts about Conor McGregor. He is in a certain camp that I think quite a few people seem to be in these days. Uh, also, Richard Branson has gone to space. Uh, that was uh, maybe, what was that, 13, 14 hours ago? So you have England losing the Euros, but you have Richard Branson in space and McGregor lay down on a canvas. It was bizarre. Um, but yes, as I say, Richard Branson up in space, he uh, is piloting this kind of new method of doing of doing business, uh, going up to the space. Uh, of course, it's his Virgin, Virgin Atlantic 
cr crew and uh, company that's launching and it's it's very very interesting we will see it also interesting that he ch chose to make that journey of course none of the other people Elon Musk uh, Jeff Bezos or indeed anybody in uh, the various pubs who have often proclaimed to be able to fly have ever actually done it well uh, Richard Branson have, has decided to do it and he, he did it he's back on earth I believe now um, at least physically and of course yeah it's very very interesting Final one here. Actually, no, second last one. There was a brilliant clip circulating I seen today of the BBC when they messed up a job interview. Basically, they were on BBC News and there was some tech correspondent that was supposed to come in. This was in about 2006. And he was supposed to come in and give his thoughts on Apple at the time. And it turns out that they had roped in a completely different guy and he does his best of uh, actually trying to soldier through this live TV piece. Have a listen and the growth of music online. Well, Guy Cuny is the editor of the technology website uh, News Wireless. Hello, good morning to you. Good morning. Were you surprised by this uh, verdict today? I'm very surprised to see this verdict to, to come on me because I was not expecting that. Here for when a job I came, uh, they told me something else and I'm coming. You got an interview there, so it's a big surprise anyway. A big surprise. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yeah. Um, with regards to uh, the cost that's in, in, involved, um, do you think uh, now more people will be downloading online? Uh, actually, if you can go everywhere, you're going you're gonna to see a lot of people downloading to the internet and the website, everything they want. But I think uh, it's, it's much better for the development and uh, to improve people what uh, they want and to get uh, on the easy way and so fast uh, the things they're looking for. This does really seem to be the way the music industry is progressing now, that people want to go onto the website and download music. Exactly. You can go everywhere on the cyber cafe and you can check. You can go easy. It's going to be a very easy way for everyone to get something to the internet. Thank you, Nee. Thanks very much indeed. I think we can now also speak. Well, that was Guy Goma, who uh, did his best job, and one of the best jobs ever, I think, of waffling your way through a job interview on live television. Uh, he was the star of 2006 after he appeared on that show, but he is apparently a business studies graduate from the Republic of Con Congo, who went into the BBC looking for a job. He went in for an interview. He ended up, of course, actually uh, being put on live TV, and, you know, he kind of waffled his way through, but a lot of people have said his predictions were prophetic uh, you know that that video and all and that uh, downloading would become this uh, huge thing either way he actually didn't end up getting the job which is horrific I mean I would say he's probably got a lawsuit on his hands there or something I mean you you to be thrust in that kind of position I, I would say yeah and to not even get the job you think they would have given him at least some shot but he didn't end up getting the job he was given a few TV gigs around the place but I, that's about it that's about it on Guy Goma so uh, Guy if you're listening Fair play. Uh, the last thing now, of course, is, as I say, the Teletubbies. Teletubbies, I'm sure many people out there have uh, w watched them for, for many, many years. They were on in the mid-90s and they were a huge hit amongst, I suppose, children and perhaps people who were a little bit out of it. But either way, they were a cult phenomena and uh, they went off the air in the mid-2000s and now they're actually back on air. But they decided to tweet out, uh, they decided to tweet out the most 
crazy thing uh, you know they're trying to promote vaccine uh, uh, intake I suppose or uptake but they actually uh, tweeted out this thing and uh, it's fair to say that the Teletubbies have forged a vaccine card so cool guy Tony if you're listening uh, let us know because we might have some culprits for you this as I say is the Teletubbies who uh, tweeted out they tweeted out on the 7th of July we're all vax just in time for a tubby hot summer who's ready to come out and play and you'd think there's no problem with it now people have pointed out that in a in a nation of four which of course is Teletubby land why have they uh, uh, sought four different vaccines they've got Noonsen they've got uh, Astrotubica um, some other one and uh, oh wait no they might have, they may have three vaccines but you think the Teletubbies probably only needed to procure one vaccine well anyway they've gone into the lab and got at least two mustered up but the important thing here is their first dose was the first of the seventh their uh, their second dose was the 22nd of the seventh now uh, they tweeted that out on the 7th of July it's whatever 15 days it's still more than two weeks until we can actually get to the end to the end of the July and when they're supposed to already have had their second shot of the vaccine so there you go the Teletubbies uh, forging their vaccine card well I suppose that's going to give rise to some uptake amongst the uh, teen forgery rings but that's it from us <laughs> I suppose that's about all really the news uh, stories we could conjure up for now of course we will be back in a little while with Don Ryan. he's got the sport review and as I say Neil Woods firstly we're going to bring you the new track from Dave and Stormzy this is Clash well you are very welcome back to the Jack McDonald show now over the sporting weekend a lot has happened English eyes Irish eyes are not in the best position right now over in Barcelona a star-studded lineup is potentially unemployed and there's a lot more to talk about to do that and more it's time for the sporting review and we have Donald Ryan to do that Donald how are things not too bad, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Well, Dono, where do we start? I suppose we have to start with the most recent event, which is England and Italy. What a game, what a result. Yeah, it was a fantastic match. Um, you know, England going 1-0 uh, up so early, or take the lead that early. I mean, it was a fantastic goal from Luke Shaw, of course, but uh, you'd wonder would that have been to their detriment. I mean, we've seen the whole tournament as, as they've played. They've just kind of sat back and just let teams come at them, kind of park the bus kind of a job. And um, they were very defensive the whole way through. And I think uh, as the game wore on, uh, Mancini was able to adapt to it. And uh, he took out Immobile and put on uh, Bellotti and stuck Insigne down the middle, which really changed things. And after Italy scored, they looked in control. And uh, of course, uh, a horrible way to lose, but uh, a fantastic way to win on penalties. Were you worried as an Italy fan? Were you worried when that first goal went in very early on? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it looked like England were just going to kick on there. You know, I was watching it with a couple of my friends and uh, they had pred- he predicted England to win 3-0. And uh, when when you see Shaw scoring that kind of a goal in the first minute, you're thinking, Jesus, this could be a, could be a long night. <laughs> and obviously it wasn't and it turned out to be quite, quite a different affair. We got to extra time then. Can you give us a rundown? I had one eye on extra time. It was. It seemed like kind of a boring affair in extra time, a bit cagey, would you say? Yeah, probably. Well, a lot of ties that kind of go to extra time, you know, with the the kind of I don't want to say pressure, but the kind of atmosphere that would be around the around the teams. It's a huge game, and they're just trying to. It's like nearly like a, a game of chess, I suppose. You know, they're just kind of be. Cagey, I suppose, is probably the best word to use. They're just kind of just kind of edge each other out, and uh, 
grab a winner if they can. And of course, like there wasn't that many chances in uh, extra time, not for England, anyways. But um, they, uh, yeah, they they just kind of played the game out. It looked at, and once you saw uh, the likes of uh, Sancho and Rashford coming on in the end, just at the very end, you you knew that the both teams were kind of happy to settle for penalties. Once we got to penalties. I was almost hoping that England would lose. Uh, you know, I was enjoying supporting England just to annoy all the fake IRA people out there. But once <laughs> once we got to that point, it would it would have been brilliant, and it was, I suppose, brilliant justice that again they lose on penalties. But of course, it actually started out quite well for England in penalties. It did, yeah. I mean, two fine finishes from Harry Kane and Harry Maguire, the centre back. I don't think anyone was expecting that. He. Uh rifled his one into the top corner he took out the camera that was in the in the goal as well he uh, smashed it to pieces um fantastic penalty but uh went all downhill from there uh i thought uh Jorginho, uh was ready to wrap it up there for italy with his kind of hop skip and jump trademark penalty but uh wasn't to be i think it was probably one of the first ones that he's missed with doing that technique you know because usually that kind of thing where where he jumps before he kicks the ball he's waiting for the keeper to move so I was quite surprised that uh, that he missed it. But, uh, of course, poor Bukayo Saka, the weight of a nation on his shoulders, and uh, he uh, kind of crumbled under the pressure, I suppose. There was a lot of interesting stances used as well, which I thought were a little bit bizarre and a little bit uh, experimental. What did you make of all of the, you know, rather than your traditional take a few steps back and go up and pelt the ball? Yeah, uh, well, I have to say, uh, I'm not a fan of uh, Jorginho's technique, the the hop, skip and the jump, but that uh, just a pet hate, like, just kind of, I don't like it. Uh, Rashford's was the most bizarre, I thought, because the, the way he lined up, he stood, stood very straight over the ball, and it looked like there was only one place that he was going to put it, um, which was down to the left, and then he kind of started doing all this shimmy and stuff, and, like, he kind of did a, shook his hips to the left, and then did a stutter in his run and all this kind of stuff, and uh, it was the only... Uh, the only penalty that uh, Donnarumma actually went the wrong way for, but uh, he still managed to miss. Yes, it, and ultimately, of course, then we had the Italy victory. I mean, the TV must have been smashed in your place. <laughs> Obviously, you were you were a big Italy fan, and you, I suppose your cards came in. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, it was probably the only prediction of the tournament that I actually got right. Um, I... Like a lot of people were saying at the start, you know, they're kind of dark horses or whatever. I didn't have, like, before a ball was kicked, I didn't have them tipped to do well at all. But once I saw them playing, you know, they re- they looked like the best football inside in the tournament. And, um, you know, they were uh, pr- they were probably the best football inside. And, of course, they went on to win it. So, like, uh, a massive achievement. And uh, England, I'd say, it would be a better pill for them to swallow, especially with the game being in Wembley. And they haven't played so many games in Wembley. And um, the whole idea of this tournament was there was no home team. But like when you when it comes down to it, I'd say England probably was the home team. So for them to lose it in their backyard would be a sore one. Well, Donald, as a now now as a member of the media, you have a new job, which is to uh, allocate blame. It's only whatever a few hours since that game is finished up, but it's probably time to start thinking about where blame lies. I see some blame already being placed on Southgate that he was releasing, you know, press releases and all this kind of stuff, and actually adding to the pressure. Is there anywhere that you would perhaps pinpoint the blame? Um. The decision for the penalty takers for me i mean in fairness to southgate i think he's been fairly spot on up until the final you know i mean whatever interview he did with the athletic or some someone like that where he was going on about uh how england has been invaded by countries and stuff and that's what drives them on like now that that was a bit ridiculous in fairness 
but uh, we won't get all political on it. But uh, the the decisions for the penalty takers, I mean, to to choose Bukayo Saka to take the last penalty when you have the likes of Grealish, the likes of Raheem Sterling on the pitch wanting to take one. Uh, even Jordan Henderson would have been a better shout who was subbed on and subbed off again in the extra time. You know, he definitely would have been a better shout, I think. But up up until last, uh, you know, Southgate's tactics were probably not a popular choice, but uh, they worked. They got England to a final, which is um, where a lot of fans wanted them to be. I think England could be pretty happy with their uh, progression in the tournament, to be honest. You know, uh, people are asking if they overachieved or underachieved. Um, I think they got it fairly spot on. I mean, they got as far as a final. I mean, you can't ask for much more only than winning it. But, uh, you know, I, the, like, and it's also a very young England side. I mean, Bukayo Saka's only 19. You know, he'll be playing for England for years to come. So this that kind of stuff, uh, while it's, it'll be tough on him now, like this experience will stand to him for the rest of his career. Okay, well, that, of course, is everything to do with the with England and the Euros. And the last time, really, we'll talk about the Euros for a while. Now, of course, the, it's time to shift attention towards the McGregor fight. Donald, did you get up? Did you stay up to watch this? No, I didn't. But uh, I was I knew he had lost when I woke up the next morning and there wasn't a trace of it online anywhere. Because um, usually when he wins, the like Twitter will be hopping. But, um, Jesus, it was an awful, uh, an awful injury he got. Yeah, uh, it was, it was absolute it was, freak accident as well. But it looks bit, it was um, absolutely yeah. it was absolutely bizarre. So I had intended to go to bed and maybe get up at three or four. He had said that the fight would be at five. I didn't do that. Eventually, I just ended up watching six hours of prelims and all this kind of <laughs> stuff going on this roller coaster of absolute hype to the gills and then down almost to sleep and hype to the gills again. Eventually, around some, sometime around five o'clock, the foggy dew starts playing. The whole thing is packed out. You've got all these celebrities and McGregor's walking out and you're going, this is it. He's looking well. Uh, you know, he does the Billy strut around the ring and you're starting to really feel it. You're, you're questioning, of course, is this the real McGregor? You know, he does seem to be imitating an older version of McGregor, but that's still a very powerful imitation if he could pull it off. Then Dustin Poirier walks out. He walks out to James Brown's The Boss. You got to pay the price to pay the cost to be the boss. And that was a very, I thought that was very good music choice. So both of them, very good music choices. They come in and immediately McGregor is looking quite well and then it kind of deteriorates I don't know if you've seen much of the fight Donald I didn't see much but now I just kind of saw the the highlights but I, I reckon that's McGregor finished now to be honest I yes mean, it's, an, it's, a, it's an awful leg break he's after getting those questions I mean how many times has he retired now two or three times yeah some uh, of those were bargaining chips and all this kind of stuff but I think he may be forced to retire if a lot of people are saying you don't come back from these kind of injuries. Now, it is worth mentioning, if anybody's seen the Notorious documentary, he was fighting on a broken ACL before. If he really wants to fight, I do believe he can fight. But of course, the so anyway, to give a a recap of the fight, he comes out quite strong. He's going with leg kicks and he's keeping Poirier at a distance. He's controlling the center of the ring. But then Poirier takes him down to the ground. McGregor tries a dangerous, risky guillotine move. It doesn't work. And from that position, McGregor is pretty much done. He's drained for about two and a half minutes. We don't exactly know when that uh, proper fracture was inflicted. But I think all of the time on the ground draining him couldn't have been 
a good thing. Eventually he gets up and it's in the, those last few seconds that we see that crucifying, uh, whether it's a shin splint or an, or an ankle splint, whatever that was, he, the leg just goes rubber. And um, it, was, it was just a bizarre event for all of the hype, all of the attention for that all to go down, for that all to go down the drain in just a matter of seconds. You know, you're hyped for the second round. A lot of people saying, if it, you know, it, it was still a fight, though. It was still a one-round fight. McGregor's best round is his first round. Poirier's worst round is his first round. It's a difficult one to wage up. Uh, if you were to look at it, look at it from an outsider's perspective, do you think if McGregor got to that's if he got that second round, got that third round, that maybe it would have been a different outcome? Could have been, you know, but like it's it's very hard to speculate on things that that we'll, we'll never know what could have happened. Like he could have. I mean, news to say, Poirier couldn't have come out all guns blazing in the second round and absolutely floored him. But um, like I said earlier on, I reckon that's McGregor finished now. I mean, like even we were speak, speaking about it last week, you know, we wonder how how much his head is really in it. So he's just kind of fighting for the for the money, I suppose. But um, with that with with that with his attitude and that kind of injury coupled on, like I can't see him coming back from it. What did you make of his post-fight uh, post-fight interview in the Octagon? Because it was the first time ever we've seen him not gracious in defeat. Oh, you know, it's McGregor in a nutshell, isn't it? You know, I mean, a lot of a lot of his carry-on is an absolute disgrace and uh, he didn't really he didn't really help himself with that either. Uh, saying stuff like <laughs> calling out Dustin Poirier's wife and all this kind of stuff. Like, I mean, just it was not as you said, not great in defeat, but there was no class about him whatsoever, you know, and it's kind of synonymous of what we've seen of him over the last couple of years. So, like, it wasn't really surprising, but uh, a man frustrated, for sure, because, like I'd say, he knows himself that he's probably coming to the end of his his, uh, UFC career. Yes, and, you know, you even had your wife's in my DMs, bro, all this kind of stuff. He's, He's yelling at people, and it maybe gave us an insight into what he's like in his training camp. You know, uh, a lot of questions being raised about his coaches and their ability to kind of, I suppose, really put the boot in when it's necessary. The guy is worth, you know, a quarter or a half of a billion dollars. He has the power and the influence to tell John Kavanaugh, Owen Ruddy and the rest of his camp where to go. Do you would you see looking at John Kavanaugh and his other coaches? Do you you think they have the strength and character to tell him, you know, the, the difficult truths or is he really the one dictating his training um that's a tough one uh you'd have to really kind of delve into the the mindset of his of his team i suppose you know john Kavanaugh is a he's a, a bit of a man of steel isn't he like but i'd imagine it is mcgregor calling the shots i mean look at him he's he's one of the most arrogant men ever like <laughs> you know he does what he, he does what he wants and he does it when he wants it like uh so you know, there's only I reckon there's only so much like you know how can you help a man that doesn't want to be helped? Um, there's only there's only so much that his coaching can do. I mean, I'm sure they can give him all the advice and all the all the goodwill and all the help that he, they they think is adequate. But uh, you'd wonder how much of it McGregor really wants to take on board, if any. Did you see McGregor bought the pub in Dublin where he uh, recently bought that pub where he had the altercation with the old man? Uh, you know, he gives the whiskey, the whisk, the man, man doesn't want it or whatever transpires and McGregor eventually throws a punch. McGregor has gone and bought that pub for two million and some account, news account tweeted it out and McGregor just quote tweeted it. Yeah. And your man's barred. <laughs> Classic again, isn't it? Um I did see that, yeah, and I'm not sure what what his thinking is behind that one. Probably trying to peddle more of that crap whiskey he sells. 
But, yeah. um, uh, so anyway, that's that's kind of McGregor in general. Of course, he's taken to Instagram in the last few hours as well. Um, he's just out of the surgery room and he still has his thoughts. I can understand, in, in conclusion, I can understand his stance and if you know you haven't seen your family and your wife and everything like that for you know a few months and you're really putting everything you have into this and it just doesn't come together and it it's you know it's stopped in that fashion i can understand some of the outbursts but i can also see where people like yourself donald are probably not along for the ride anyway uh on to wimbledon wimbledon we had the men's final we had the women's final and we had the mixed uh doubles final uh, did you have a, a chance to tune into any of these I just happened to glance over um, Djokovic, of course, the main story. Um, you know, three Wimbledon titles in a row. He's on for the on for the Grand Slam again this year. Uh, he's the Australian Open one already, and of course, he picked up the French Open there a couple of weeks ago. So you know, he's really kind of shown why he's the why he's the number one, uh, sweeping the Italian fella aside fairly fairly handy. Um, you know, it was a great week for Italy in sport, wasn't it? <laughs> you know. Uh, getting represented in finals in Wimbledon and the European Championships in the soccer, and uh, the women's, of course, Ash Barty is also the, the current number one, uh, winning her first uh, her first um, Wimbledon title. So Former yeah, it's cricket been a... player as well. She was a cricket player for a period of time, almost like a Michael Jordan doing baseball for a year. <laughs> she came back to tennis recently and is obviously doing quite well. Yeah, well, she's not the world number one for no reason, you know. Uh, she's obviously a bit of a dab hand in sports, dabbling into cricket and stuff as well. A bit and like Katie Taylor, you know. She's the first, I believe she's the first number one seed since Serena Williams in 2016 to actually win Wimbledon. Generally, number one doesn't actually go on to win Wimbledon. Well, power to her. I mean, it's her, it's her, first, uh, her first Wimbledon title uh, by the looks of it. Like, as I said there, she's not number one for no reason. I'd say she has a, a serious career ahead of her if she keeps the head screwed on, you know. Um, so yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, like you said, there could be a bit of a, a bit of a curse about the the number one at Wimbledon, but uh, it looks to be broken now. And uh, I'd say she'll pick up another couple of titles along the road. Then of course we had Mayo and Leitrim in a game which was bizarrely easy. I mean, what is it, five or six goals? It was bizarre. Our own Sean O'Hora, of course, for from CRC was doing some stewarding, I believe. So if there was any issues with the stewarding, we'll know where to point to. <laughs> Donald, uh, what did you make of the game? A handy day, another handy day out from AO. Of course, they, they hockeyed my own Sligo the week before, and uh, they just blew Leitrim out of the water again this week. I mean, you'd have to kind of wonder, would what does the provincial championship kind of need a bit of a restructure? I mean, if you look around the country, even like you have Dublin cruising every year, uh, like some Mayo, Galway, Roscommon. Uh, you know, they're just like the the. There's, you'd wonder, is there any point in teams like Sligo and Leitrim playing in it because they just get trounced every year? I mean, Sligo didn't even play last year because of COVID, and uh, they played this. They played last week against Mayo here in Sligo, and I think it was three twenty three to to twelve points. And again, Mayo putting five twenty past Leitrim again. Like you know, those kind of hammerings. Like Mayo don't take anything from us. Leitrim and the likes of Sligo certainly don't take anything from us. You know, so you'd have to wonder what is like does would a reshuffle of the provincial structure would that be needed? I think so, to be honest. What did we make of some of the player performances? Was there any star performances? Any good? Any bad? That was a very uh, just a very cohesive uh, team effort, really. You know, they were extremely professional in what they had to do. They just, they they showed up basically. You know, uh, 
Darren Cohen, I believe, had a fantastic game, kicking some fine scores as well. But you know, it's just like it's just a, a very slick professional performance from Mayo, and ultimately got them over the line. I'd say that match was done and dusted by halftime at the at the earliest. You know. <laughs> And of course, then the other big story is Lionel Messi, who may be heading for the dole queue. This, of course, is a bizarre thing, but Barcelona seem to be in grave financial trouble. Yeah, Barcelona are in serious bother. Um, you know, Messi is current. He's currently a free agent. I mean, I don't think anyone is going to be jumping into to snap him up anytime soon. And and if it is, it's going to be the only ones that could afford him would be PSG. But I can't. Re- I really can't see that happening. Um, yeah, Barcelona's financial trouble has been no secret over the last couple of years. Uh, a, a wage list was released there from the 2019-2020 season. I think Messi was on like 1.1 or 1.2 million a week. The next highest paid was Antoine Griezmann on 795,000 euro a week. I mean, when you're playing, when you're throwing that kind of money at players for, you know, Griezmann not really a star of the Barcelona team now or even that season, you know, I like he play, probably played his best football for Atletico Madrid, but uh, he hasn't really shone at Barcelona for me, anyways. Uh, and when you're giving him nearly eight hundred thousand a week, you know you're asking for trouble. The next highest then was uh, Luis Suarez while he was there on four hundred five thousand, and then it kind of filtered down. I think Frankie De Jong was next on three hundred seventy five or three hundred sixty thousand. So you know, like this, of course, like the money in football is huge. Everybody knows that the wages are, you know ridiculous it doesn't bear talking about like but when you're throwing that kind of money at players and they're not you're not getting the return and uh they're off the field uh, the so much drama with the board and stuff like swindling them out of money and all this kind of stuff i mean they've only had a, a president re-elected in the last year to try and kind of salvage something out of the the damage that was done on the board before that so uh, it's no it's no secret that they're in serious financial trouble, but it's not exactly a surprise either. With Messi, it's very interesting that at 34, he could he, one of the you know brightest stars in the game could almost be forced into retirement or some you know equivalency of that because not because of his talent, but because because of money. It's perhaps the first example we will ever see of a player outrunning the road or outrunning the track. <laughs> yeah, well, for me, you know, he is the best ever. He is, he is the best. And now that he's after picking up the Copa America there at the weekend, that'll kind of silence a lot of the doubters saying that uh, settle a bit of the argument in the debate between himself and Ronaldo because Ronaldo, of course, uh, winning the Euros in 2016. Messi now has that international trophy to bring to the table as well. Uh, you'd imagine he'd pick up the Ballon d'Or as well this year on the back of picking up the Copa America. So, you know, he's, he's worth... Like, it's fair enough that he's probably the best paid player in the world because he is one of the best footballers to ever kick a ball and um, whether it, it remains to be seen whether he'll stay on at Barcelona or take off somewhere else for somewhere that actually can't afford him but uh, I say whatever will happen at Barcelona they will do whatever they can to keep Messi in the ranks but isn't it, isn't that bizarre I mean if you think about it back in the day of George Best or whoever I mean a Pele to think that no club in the world could afford Pele's wages would be bizarre and that seems like a situation we are increasingly encroaching upon with players like Messi. Yeah, it is a strange one, but uh you know every man every man has his price. <laughs> so uh, I'd imagine there will be something done at Barcelona uh hect- hectic or otherwise to kind of keep Messi happy, which has kind of been their trope for the last couple of years, you know, it doesn't really matter what goes on as long as he's as long as he's satisfied with the way things are going who's coming in, who's going out, managers, etc. You know, you, there's rumours 
there's all kinds of rumors about Messi having a say in who Barcelona sign or who's who the next manager is going to be like. And if they don't, if Messi doesn't like them when they're there, you know, they might as well be, might as well start packing their bags. But yeah, it is bizarre. You know, like I said, you couldn't, you could never really foresee anything like this happening, and it's never happened before. And as you said, Jack, you know, I don't think it will happen again. But you know, when you're the when you're the greatest player in the world or the greatest player to ever play the game, you know, these are the kind of extraordinary demands or the extraordinary situations you find yourself in. Well, last week we debuted the Top Geezer Award to much fanfare and no sooner than we had completed the segment than you had gone and done research and pulled another person for this week's Top Geezer, Donald. You brought us the story of a Longford uh, Town fan. I did, yeah. Longford Town fan, you know, Longford this uh, smallish club uh, currently in the Premier Division of the League of Ireland. Uh, having a decent season, although they're bottom of the table, but you know, it's a it's a tight league, so a couple of results go their way, and they could be right back at it. But uh, yeah, there was a picture going around of uh, a young Jeremy Doku, uh, one of the breakthrough stars of the Belgian uh, national team at the Euros this year, uh, spotted as uh, uh, holding a, a Longford Town scarf after he played a game there for the Belgium uh, under 17s at the European Championships that were played in uh, in Ireland a couple of years ago. So you know. <laughs> Uh, the League of Ireland is a very well-supported league and it's good to see that its reach has uh, expanded uh, towards uh, Europe and beyond. Well, there you go. Myself and many other people may not be avidly tuning in to the League of Ireland, but Jeremy Doku perhaps is. The Top Geezer Award goes to Jeremy. Jeremy, if you want to contact the programme, we'll uh, (laughs) do up a trophy and have Donal send it out to you. Donal, thanks so much uh, once again. Sporting Review, brilliant stuff. No problem at all, Jack. Thanks very much. Well, that was the Sporting Review there with Donald Ryan. We'll be back after this. Support for The Jack McDonald Show is brought to you by Manscaped. Manscaped is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming needs. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. Join the movement for all your below-the-waist grooming needs. Now, Manscaped have just launched in Ireland, and we've gone years over here without using the right tools for the job. You can be one of the first men in Ireland to experience their life-changing products. That's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. The Manscaped engineering team has perfected the greatest trimmer ever created and just released the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. When I tell you it's premium, I mean premium. The battery will last you up to 90 minutes so you can take a longer shave. Their third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents with their advanced skin safe technology pioneered by Manscaped. I've got it here in my hand and while I don't know a lot about trimmers, it certainly is premium. Plus the waterproof technology allows you to groom in the shower. One of the coolest features is the LED LED light which illuminates areas for your choice. If you're listening to me speak right now, I want you to experience it firsthand for yourself. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TJMS at manscaped.com. So that's 20% off and free shipping with the code TJMS when you go to manscaped.com. As I say, that's 20% off free shipping at manscaped.com when you use the code TJMS. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Over the last 15 months, I'm sure we've all had a little of that. Well, BetterHelp is here to step in. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under just 48 hours. 
It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not locally be available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room ever again. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free of charge to change counsellors if needed. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. It's more affordable than traditional online counselling and financial aid is available. So, you're going to visit their website at betterhelp.com forward slash reviews to check out the testimonials that are posted daily. And if you want to avail of the special offer provided by BetterHelp to listeners of The Jack McDonald Show, go to betterhelp.com forward slash TJMS to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com forward slash TJMS. Welcome back to The Jack McDonald Show here on CRCFM. Now, my next guest, very, very interesting. He spent 14 years undercover in the UK's police force tackling crime, specifically drug crime. He has since left the force and become an advocate for decriminalizing drugs. He's the author of the best-selling Good Cop, Bad War. Neil Woods, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jack. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's, it's truly, Neil, it's truly a pleasure to have you on. So if we can start, I suppose, at the start, how did you get into the police force? Uh, well, it, it was a whim, actually. Um, I went to university by mistake. And um, when I dropped out, I wondered what I was going to do. And I was going to go backpacking around Europe, um, follow some friends who were fruit picking and that kind of thing. Um, then I saw an advertisement for the police and so I flipped a coin uh, and as it came up heads that um, took me on the long journey which has brought me all the way here to speak to you today. Wow so when you got into the police force did you have an idea that you would end up working undercover or how did you end up becoming an undercover cop? No I had no idea at all in fact when I got into the police and started working on the streets, I realized um, that I was incredibly naive. Uh, I didn't realize how sheltered I'd been. And certainly I was a very terrible police officer uh, for the first couple of years. And I, it was more about just hanging on to my job and just to prove I could survive the first two years rather than any ambitions of complex covert policing. But um, I, I survived in the job and after four years, I got an attachment to the drug squad. The reason for that is that there was the mother of all moral panics going on uh, in the UK, as, as in much of Europe at the time, because tabloid newspapers have been talking for years about what would happen when crack cocaine hit the streets. And of course, and then they did. However, by that point, the tabloid newspapers and the news had whipped up everyone into a state of fear and moral panic about this uh, this problem. So. The Home Office, picking up on that, directed all of the police to invest massively in drugs policing. And, and that's where I stepped in. Um, and really the beginning of the kind of undercover work that I did was then, um, because, th you know, the, the, that kind of word I did hadn't been done before in the UK. So going undercover, 
was that a big shift? Did you have to, I suppose you probably had to go through training. What was the experience like going from a self-admitted kind of struggling cop making it day to day to now taking this big leap to go undercover and go face to face with the criminals that perhaps you had been doing paperwork on before? Well, I mean, I was, I felt very pleased to be able to do the, this this work because it was entirely about drugs investigations and I'd been taught that the very worst people in our communities were, were drug dealers. So I was pleased to be doing that kind of work, but there was no training at all. I was just thrown in at the deep end. And so I was literally making it up as I went along. I helped design the training for other undercover officers uh, for four or five years later. But for those first, first few years, it was it was just surviving by the seat of my pants, really. I've got to say, um, that seems bizarre. You know, you're, you're taking your life in your hands there and there isn't even so much as an ABCs as how to do this. No, I mean, I, I'm not saying that undercover work, police work hadn't happened before because certainly it had for at least since before 1968. But that was high-end undercover work. This was the opposite. This was low end. This was starting at the ground level and trying to meet people and network with people and and work my way up through organisations from the ground level, which as me, as many under full undercover cops, you know, spoke to me later on said that, that I was crazy for doing that and it was actually far more dangerous than the work that they did. But no, there was a very um, laissez-faire sort of casual approach to this and you know i got almost got myself killed several times but but yet there was there was no training at all and no real consideration for for, for my safety looking looking back mm. and no real understanding of of just how much how dangerous the streets were becoming is with every with every passing year because and this is an important point actually the first time i bought heroin or crack cocaine it wasn't actually that dangerous but it became dangerous because organized crime quickly became aware of the presence of people like me on the streets and so you know what and, and this is important to note that with every passing year it became more and more dangerous so the danger and the violence on the streets i now realize of course is actually down to the attempts to solve this problem through policing whereas there is no policing solution to drugs it's, it's a health issue. So the violence that we see, you know, the growth of gangs, the monopolization of gangs, um, the violence that's used to protect the drug trade on our streets, this is all a response to policing. This has been caused by the policy of trying to deal with drugs by, by policing. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I mean, police are incredibly good at catching drug dealers. They are, I was particularly good at it, but police never reduce the size of the market. Over time, we do change the shape of that market. And when we see the violence, um, increased stabbings, shootings, this is the changing shape that's being created by an attempt to deal with it through policing. Well. 
of course, uh, as time went on, you would, I suppose, become apprehensive and ultimately maybe bashful of your involvement. But before that, w that was the case, when you were scoping out a target, when they came to you and they said, Neil, we want you to go and do this undercover mission, what would the steps be like? What was your approach in building trust? Because, you know, you didn't have training. So what, you know, was it, uh, you know, I suppose muddying up your coat? How, how did maybe the way you talked, the way you walked, how did you build trust with these street level dealers? Well, there's many facets to that. The most important thing is to have a credible um, legend. Uh, that's the technical word for a sort of background story. And what I would do as I went into any inner city area is I would get to know people in order to build credible links to the community around me. Now, from an undercover cop's point of view, what I would, you know, what I would do is I would pick on the most vulnerable people to manipulate. And if that sounds ruthless, well, well, it is ruthless. The most vulnerable people were the easiest to manipulate. And I, I, I knew, I, I became aware that I was causing those people emotional harm. You know, meeting me was literally going to be the worst thing that, that they're in their lives. Um, but I justified to myself doing that because I believed that the end justified the means that I was causing harm to these individuals but it was justified because at the end of the operation, I would catch the gangsters. And that's like a sort of microcosm of the wider war on drugs, both regionally, nationally and internationally. This idea that we can cause harm to individuals to solve a bigger problem. But collectively, we're ignoring the fact that this is making the bigger problem get worse with every passing year. But at the time, I didn't realise that. So I caused harm to these people. I manipulated vulnerable people so that they would introduce me with all credibility to the organized crime gangs who were um, a step up away from the street dealing, who were, who were further up the ladder. And so that, that's how I, I managed to work my way through. I got people to introduce me, to back me, um, and I would spend all sorts of time building my legend and my reputation by doing things like um, shoplifting, selling apparently stolen goods to different dealers and stolen property, just so I had that reputation of somebody who was who was behaving in a in a certain way. Shoplifting was great fun, by the way. <laughs> it really was, you know. But you know, if you if you've got a get out of jail free card, then then it can certainly be good fun, but not perhaps so much fun for those people who are who are struggling with life. But I I had I had a laugh. <laughs> what is? Do you have an idea or a favorite thing that you shoplifted in your time? Well, it was always fascinating working out what people wanted and, and what would fetch money, um, because obviously it makes it more believable if you know the market that, that, uh, where you are. And in poorer communities, you know, certainly in the summer, the thing that would always fetch money is children's clothes and, and school uniforms for the, for the coming year for school uniforms, because kids grow up so fast, don't they? And they're always needing clothes. And, uh, I found that a bit sad, really, and, and perhaps um, a real indictment of society that the panic from families creating the, a need to, to willingly spend money on stolen property was because they can't afford to clothe their children. And, um, well, it, it, it's some kind of comment on society, I think, anyway. Certainly, yeah, not a, not a good comment as well. 
when you were posing and you know building this legend would you be posing as a junkie or as i suppose more of a functioning drug user what kind of how how were you tilting those scales yeah i mean not every time but when i started off i was uh, i sort of pretended to be a bit of a traveling thief i suppose the northern northern england phrase is a traveling is a scally i don't suppose you have that word in ireland um not really uh, but but someone someone who's a who's a travelling thief. So I would be talking about committing low level commercial burglaries, car theft, that kind of thing. But later on, I realised that actually the thing that opened the most doors really was if I pretended to be part of the community, which was really on the fringes and really struggling. So people who are homeless or living in squats or on the edge of that kind of community. So the people who were the most problematic consumers of, of heroin and, or or crack cocaine but you, you use the word we, we we in the in the world of drug policy reform we we avoid words like junkie or or things like that um because it's it adds to stigma and these are when, when we see someone struggling with a with problematic heroin use or the vast majority of them in fact in fact academic studies prove that at least two-thirds of problematic heroin users are self-medicating for childhood trauma so childhood neglect physical abuse or sexual abuse and a lot of the rest of the people are self-medicating for trauma or mental health problems which they've developed as adults so when we see somebody who is struggling with heroin we shouldn't be judging them or labeling them with stigmatizing names we should be asking what happened to you and how can we take care of you Certainly, when I use the term junkie, it doesn't carry an implicit, or certainly from myself, it doesn't carry an implicit commentary. It's more, you know, the state somebody has embroiled themselves in with the use of the drug. But from your perspective, what is the better term to use for somebody who is really embroiled in a heroin or, or otherwise a drug, uh, I suppose, addiction? Someone who has a substance use disorder or someone who is using a drug problematically. So there's no one word. It's more of a description and an understanding, really. But I mean, language is, I mean, you know, almost every um, newspaper reporter or or media interviewer also use the same word. So you, you're not the only person I've made this comment to. I challenge the use of that word and many other words all of the time. But what I do point out that, you know, back in the 1970s, newspapers would quite happily use words um, that were very derogative to homosexuals. That no one would in their in a in a million years dream of using, you know. So, it's 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 important to note that our society changes, and we are in the process of change because the social movement is growing um, for those people who want drug law reform. The social movement is growing for those people who want to understand and care for people who are using substances problematically rather than judge them. And you know, this is important to realize that we're in the midst of a change. We're in the midst of a, of a growing social movement because you know, I, I went to, I'm, I'm 51. And when I was at school, say between the ages of 13 and 15, everybody was prejudiced against homosexuals. No one would come out as being homosexual and people would bully, you know, bullies would pick on people uh, who they perceived might be homosexual. And this is a normal thing. 
if I was to meet any one of the people that I went to school with, any of them, not one of them would admit to being prejudiced as a youngster. They would all want to appear to be completely enlightened, like they've always been enlightened. And, and they would all protest that being homosexual is perfectly normal and no one should be prejudiced against them. And that's social movement in, in action because change happens to a point where everyone wants to feel like they were a part of it from the beginning. And this, this will happen in the future with drug policy. Fewer and fewer people in the future will admit that they ever thought there was anything wrong with someone choosing to consume cannabis instead of alcohol or, or, or taking MDMA and dancing in a field to some repetitive music or having a line of cocaine with their pint of beer on a Friday night. The, the, the future, in the future, people will look back in horror at the prejudice and the stigma that we still perpetuate at the moment. But, but I have to let everyone know, everyone should be aware Times are changing and you will be judged. The times are changing. I wondered as well, you know, in, in the modern era, especially with TV, people kind of almost idolize drug dealers, drug kingpins from Top Boy to Power to Breaking Bad. There's a, there's a real, I suppose, you know, accountants go home from their nine to five and they, I suppose, they escape in the idea of perhaps living above the law. As somebody who did come face to face with a lot of these kingpins, drug lords, etc., did you have any admiration? Were you impressed by any of them? That's an interesting question, actually. Um... I never really liked any of the proper gangster types. They were always rather uh, unpleasant people. But yeah, I mean, I admired the efficiency and and uh, how good some of them were at it. But of course, you know, policing drugs means that the most violent and ruthless people are the most successful. And also that some of the cleverest. So, you know, that the whole system refines the marketplace and means that that the most successful people stand out. Um, and, you know, sometimes I've met people and I've thought, wow, if you could just put your energies into something legitimate, you could probably be successful at any business. But, but of course, the opportunity that's been created by drug prohibition means that there's more money to be made in, in illicit drugs than anything else. So that's what attracts people to it. And a, a great number of the people I've met who are who are decent drug dealers wouldn't consider for a moment committing any other form of crime at all, because all of the other crime is too high a risk with too little gain. So venturing into the drug market and behaving as they needed to in order to succeed within that market is a rational choice, a rational choice created by the opportunities that are there. So it's important to note that, you know, that, that this is this is an opportunity that, that's been created. It's not something that's happened because people are bad. People have become bad because of that opportunity and that's how they need to behave. I'll give you one example to back that up, actually. There's a 16-year-old I met in Leicester and I was doing an undercover operation there and he was a really likeable lad. I could have a laugh with him. But six months later, he'd become an absolutely terrifying 17-year-old. Because during that period of time, during, with, his, with, his, with the time that he spent with the other gang members of which he was a part of, he had had to modify 
change and develop his behavior in order to survive on the streets and to become good at what he did. Because rival dealers, they have to come, they have to make sure that they're not grassed up. They have to make sure that they've got a reputation which protects them. And you know, and the situation's been created where the most violent, or rather people who are prepared to be the most violent become the most successful dealers. And you know, there's no way as a 14, 15 year old, he imagined himself growing up to be a, an extremely violent drug dealer. But it was the circumstances in which he found himself taking up that opportunity, which meant that he changed forever. He changed to become a violent person. So, you know, when, when, when we see the news and we see news of a stabbing or we see the news of a shooting or some young man or a collection of young men being sent to prison, you know, we have to bear in mind that it's the market, it's the situation, it's policy, which is, which is changing our young men and making them violent. And I don't think there's any wide understanding of that at all, that it's policy that's taken us to this position. And, and if, you know, and it's, and thank you for being able to, for allowing me to at least get this message out and try and help people understand that. Keeping with the idea of the media, one of the really interesting films depicting undercover work, and of course it is a film with uh, with Johnny Depp in the centre, so there is of course some fictionality to it, but is Donnie Brasco, where an undercover cop becomes essentially a part of the life and he basically ditches the legal side of it. Did you ever find that you were identifying more with the legend, the character you had created than your own self? No, not really. Um, I mean, there was, but I mean, Donnie Brasco is more of an example of like level one undercover work where it's a full full infiltration. Um, I mean, I did, I I was fully immersed in in the plot and the areas where I worked for several days at a time, but I did manage to get regular breaks to to leave the plot as well. Um, But I mean, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't associate with that kind of violent criminality because there's not, it was never part of my role to be violent or part of that behavior. That's not, that's not the role I took, but I certainly did later on identify more with the ethics of some of the problematic heroin users than I did my own colleagues, because certainly where I worked in Brighton, I met some incredible people. I met incredible people on the streets all, all over, all over the place. But in Brighton, I met some such extraordinary clever people who were really interesting and, and had a really really good ethical view of the world. And then unfortunately, whereas in many places the police I'd worked with were, were really good people, in Brighton they really weren't. They were unpleasant, bullying and obnoxious people who would laugh when a problematic heroin user would die. So, you know, I found myself having much more sympathy with the people I was spending time with undercover than I did for the views of the of the police officers that I would be. Um, I had as my backup team so nothing as dramatic as Donnie Darko I'm afraid but uh, but certainly in terms of individual ethics um, I, I had much more in common with them. So eventually you decided to retire or at least leave the police force was that a difficult decision to make and how long was the period of time when you started to have questions about your impact in the uh, the drug problem in the UK to actually uh, handing in your badge and leaving the police force? 
Well, I started having doubts really after a few years doing the work, but I was sort of, the thing is I was resistant to those doubts because you get so invested in, in your expertise. You know, I was very pleased with being good at what I was doing. Also, you, there's a certain amount of youthful arrogance as well. Um, you know, because I had so many near death experiences and I was so pleased with myself that I could get through those and still function well. I enjoyed the reputation that I was developing at being good at it. So, you know, you have so much invested in in the work and doing and, and doing the work that I was resistant to the growing con- conclusions that were growing at the back of my mind. And eventually the penny dropped, you know, I was a bit slow and I was slow to understand truthfully. But eventually I, I, I couldn't resist the logic of what I was seeing before me that with every passing year, that you know the streets are becoming more and more violent um and part of that reason was was the presence of people like me on the streets and you know i, I told you earlier about that ethical decision you know the decision to keep going with because the end justified the means well when i worked for northampton i spent seven months um gathering evidence against the burger bar boys a really ultra violent drug gang almost got killed a couple of occasions, I, I believe, on that on that operation. And um, after seven months of work, knowing that I'd caught every single person involved in the trade, because I'd got every single phone number, I'd met every single person who'd been described to me. And there was evidence gathered against 96 people, six of the Bergamar boys and 90 other people. So I thought, wow, this, this operation is going to have such a huge impact. I'm catching everybody. But the cop who was tasked with keeping his ear to the ground um, to, to, to suss out the impact of the operation told me afterwards, he says, yeah, we managed to interrupt the heroin and crack cocaine supply for a full two hours. Seven months of work, 96 people arrested, hundreds of police involved, an absolute fortune in expenditure and almost getting myself killed for the sake of interrupting the supply for two hours. Now, you know, that makes a lie to the end, justifying the means, doesn't it? And it certainly makes a lie to all of the ethical justification that I made to myself. And, you know, I should emphasize that I'm part of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which is an international organization. I'm on the board for the operation for the organization in the United States and here in Europe, particularly Leap UK. And so I speak to cops all over the world. And What I can tell you honestly is that that experience of the futility of that massive operation is replicated everywhere, at every level. We never reduce the size of the market. There are too many people dying to take advantage of the opportunity that the market creates, so we never reduce it. And yet we cause massive harm to vulnerable people as we pursue an attempt to to deal with drugs by policing. So it's worse than futile. It's causing harm both to individuals and to society. We're making organized crime more monopolized, more powerful. And as a result of that, directly corrupting our entire institutions, including the criminal justice institutions and the police. So whichever way you look at it, our current, current drug policy is an utter, utter catastrophe. It's a growing crisis. Now, I was slow. As I say, I really was slow in coming to those conclusions. And so 
that's why I decided that I had to dedicate my time to explaining these things to other people in simpler terms so that other people, and, you know, a lot of people listening to this will understand this a lot quicker than I was able to do. But understand it, we must. And, you know, if you do understand this and you realise the need for change, then then you are also, you are now part of this social movement for change. And this social movement is only going in one direction. But I would implore any of you, any of you listening to this, you know, do what you can. Do what you can to make this social movement grow more. Get your parents or your friends to also listen to this or, or listen to other reformers talk about this. Listen to other people from, from my organisation. Because all we're saying to you is basic truths. We refer only to evidence, not ideology. Uh, because it's ideology that's got us into this mess in the first place. Powerful, powerful, no doubt. So in 2016, you released Good Cop, Bad War. Now, walk me through the process. So obviously, you had your feelings as you left the force, but it's a far step, isn't it, to go from leaving a police force to actually becoming a person within the media and basically becoming, as you say, an advocate for change. What was that experience like? It was a pain in the arse, to be honest, because <laughs> essentially, essentially, I am an introvert. I don't like attention. Um, I just like a quiet life to read books and uh, you know, to, and and to talk about things, listen to music, and enjoy live music, that kind of thing. I, if if you told me in say twenty twelve that I that in the future I would write a book of my memoirs and expose myself to public scrutiny, I would have laughed at you. I really would. So the whole, the whole process of getting my head around doing that and the necessity to do that was, was quite difficult really. And I was only just starting to get my head around uh, the fact that I've got post-traumatic stress disorder as well. Um, so that made a sort of slight added complication to, to, to go in public and, and having scrutiny. But I, I teamed up with a brilliant writer, um, J.S. Raffaele, who, who, who helped me write Good Cop, Bad War. And what he did is brought some quality to it. And the most important thing about that is knowing what to leave out, what to cut down, because there's so much material that could have got in there. But it had to have the right story arc. You know, the, the, the memoirs had to go into a three-act structure. Um, so... Everything was trimmed down, made, you know, made, made um, you know, just so much was cut out of that, of that book. Uh, but that, you know, his skills made it successful, you know, and it does read like a crime thriller. That's what I'm told. Um, and that's what we aimed for. So, so it's been really, really successful. And, and, and I'm glad about that because it had to be to reach a decent audience, really. And it doesn't preach. It just presents things as they are, and in the hope that any reasonable person could come to the reasonable conclusions as a result of that. Neil, in your utopia, in you know, and maybe it will come to pass in 10 or 15 years' time, how would it practically lay out? Would you be able to go into Tesco at 18 or 21 and purchase a certain a set amount of heroin? Would it be through a doctor? What, what would your idea of the right approach to drugs be? 
well, we should be clear, there is no possibility of a utopia with drug policy because drugs are difficult to deal with. They are. Um, there's, there's never going to be a perfect society because there will always be some kind of problem in dealing with problematic drug use. But making them criminal is the worst possible way to deal with drugs and the, the best possible way of causing problematic substance use because criminalizing people allows them to be exploited by organized crime. But in terms of uh, the best drug policy, uh, the best, best possible drug policy has been worked out by some very clever people who are allies of, uh, of ours at LEAP. They're an organization called Transform Drug Policy Foundation. And they literally have the answers to all of the questions. And drugs should be regulated according to their relative harms. Now, if you bear in mind that according to very good scientific studies of comparison, the most problematic drug is alcohol by some considerable way. Um, and so alcohol could be regulated far better. Where In countries where regulation is stricter, such as Norway, there are less deaths from alcohol and less health harms and less costs to the health service from alcohol. So we can regulate alcohol better. And we should approach other drugs in the same way in that it's time to get them under control because they're out of control at the moment. It, it, it's, we, it's the wild west, we've surrendered control to, to, to criminals. So each drug has different harms. So you mentioned heroin, heroin would never be for sale so freely. We would always only have a medical model for heroin. Go back to the British system where problematic use is dealt with by prescribing heroin. And then people can seek help for that when they feel able to do so, but they will be more able to do so if they are not being exploited by organized crime. For cannabis, we have the Canadian model to look to or the Uruguay model or maybe the Spanish model. Um, I, I like the Canadian model, but we, but we must do better than Canada. Canada has licensed outlets for people to buy uh, regulated um, amounts and regulated types of cannabis. Um, but the problem that Canada have done, what they've done is they've, they've made two essential mistakes in their regulation. One is that their regulated outlets are not universally providing the highest quality so that some people feel that they can get higher quality on the illicit market. That's quite a mistake. Uh, and also they've taxed it too high so that it's twice the price of the illicit price. And that's no good. If you look at the way Uruguay have done it, they did the opposite. They've undercut the illicit market so much that why would anyone go to the illicit market? It's only a dollar a gram from the pharmacy. So, so you know, price is an important regulatory tool. But for all of the other drugs in between, you know, you, they, you have to regulate them according to their harm. So, for example, MDMA, ecstasy, is the perfect example of a drug which is not banned because it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it's banned. If you look at all of the deaths that's been caused by MDMA, they've either not been caused by MDMA, it, it's been caused by something in the tablet that people didn't know was there, or they've died because the tablet contains four times the dose for a big, strong, healthy adult. And that can cause overdoses. So regulation will save lives. And MDMA is a relatively safe drug with the correct dosage and the correct information 
harm reduction information. So you should be able to buy the accurate dose of MDMA from a licensed pharmacy in a blister pack with a guarantee on the side of that box that it's been manufactured in the correct clean laboratory to certain conditions and that the measured dose is, for example, 0.089 um, of a milligram for a large, for a, for a normal sized adult. So, you know, and the, uh, the most difficult drug to regulate is always going to be cocaine because of its preferred method of, of consumption and also the short lasting effect of it, which encourages redosing. Um, but Transform have just produced a book explaining the best ways of regulating uh, cocaine in their book, uh, Stimulants, how to regulate stimulants. Um, and, but you, we must remember that whatever difficulties there are in fine tuning the regulation around such substances like that, it's never ever going to be any kind of problem compared with the problems we have now. Because anyone who wants cocaine can get it now. And we don't know what's in that cocaine. Some cocaine will contain 12 different adulterants, including a cattle wormer, which is quite dangerous to the body. So a regulated system will never be perfect in everyone's eyes, but it's the, the least worst option. And most importantly, from a policing perspective, a regulated system takes money, a lot of money, out of the hands of organised crime because that money is being used to corrupt our system and undermine our very economic institutions. Certainly, it does seem like Neil Woods may be at the front of a movement that uh, 10, 15 years time, I think, certainly will be top of mind for a lot of individuals. Neil, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you very much for inviting me, Jack. It's, it's, uh, it's been good speaking with you. Great. That was the excellent Neil Woods. We'll be back after this. Yes, well, of course, Neil Woods there. And before that, we had Donald Ryan and the Teletubbies, who maybe it's time to do a little bit of digging into. Anyway, that's it from us here in studio. We'll be back here tomorrow night. Until then, it's time to hand you over to the playlist. See you then.